Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I'm the director of the museum. I trust you are all physically and mentally in good shape as we enter the ninth month of this dreadful pandemic. It continues to take its toll on the heritage sector and more specifically on the regimental museums up and down the country, with several who are unlikely to reopen following the ravages of the financial impact of enforced closure. It's no secret that museums such as ours, and indeed most of the regimental museums, rely to some degree on donations from the public. If our support groups in the community are being impacted with job losses and the drying up of their income, it is no surprise to find that the downstream effect of that is the inevitable drying up of donations to institutions such as ours. It's ironic that our prudent approach to our ongoing resilience in the form of us squirrelling away money into the trust fund, or the rainy day fund as we call it, has actually had a detrimental effect on our ability to bid for any of the emergency funding that's on offer. If you have any financial reserves, you go to the back of the queue, whereas if we had spent it all, we would almost certainly be receiving a handout. Note to self, don't be prudent in the future. This week, I intend being somewhat indulgent, as I am sat here in our cottage in Devon, with the rain coming in horizontally from the Atlantic. The wood burner is lit and I have a huge mug of tea at my elbow. The atmosphere is just right for a glimpse into the life of one of the more charismatic directors of music in the Household Division, namely Lieutenant Colonel Cecil Harry Yeager, better known to the musical world as Jiggs Yeager. It is fair to say that he gave his life to music in that he died while still in military service. Now there is a man who has also spent much of his adult life steeped in the world of military music, and he goes by the name of Colin Dean. What Colin doesn't know about this world is probably not worth knowing. In 2013, he wrote a marvellous book about the life of Jiggs Jaeger, and it is from that book that I will be offering you some of the glimpses this week. Stories of Jiggs Jaeger abound, and some of them are true. However, Colin has sorted the wheat from the chap for us, so I will dive into the book with confidence. Jaeger was born in Folkestone in 1913, and he was named after the hotel where his German father Heinrich worked at the time. I refer to the Cecil Hotel in the Strand. His middle name of Harry is the anglicised version of his father's name, Heinrich. His father was interned when the First World War broke out, despite him being a proud Anglophile, and his children went into foster care. He and his brother George ended up in the Newport Market Army Training School in Westminster, in Greencoat Place, ironically not far from Wellington Barracks. The school was run on military lines, but the boys were well cared for and were exposed to military music through their membership of the school band. Jiggs joined the army on the 6th of October 1927 as a 14-year-old boy in the band of the 1st Battalion King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, the Coilies as they were known. He excelled in his studies under the bandmaster Charles Raisin, which saw him being rewarded by being sent to Nella Hall, the Royal Military School of Music in Twickenham, as the youngest student on the pupils course. After a successful course at Nella Hall, he returned to the Coilies, where in time he achieved the appointment of bugle major, 
Then another trip to Nella Hall, this time as a student bandmaster, after which he was posted in 1942 to the 4th Queen's Own Hussars. He served with them for six years, and then after achieving those three all-important post-nominal letters, PSM, which stands for Past School of Music, in 1948 he was commissioned as a lieutenant and posted to the Royal Military School Sandhurst as Director of Music of the RMAS Band. He was destined only to stay there for a year, for in April 1949 he was selected to be the Director of Music of the Band of the Irish Guards. This is where we take up our story. He was thrilled as he was only 35 years of age and did not possess an Irish bone in his body. As the Irish Guards were only formed in 1900, he was only the fourth director of music they had had. He was destined to spend the next 19 years with them and would rise from the rank of lieutenant to that of lieutenant colonel. He was blessed with a great sense of humour and was an arch entertainer when comparing concerts in front of the band. There are endless stories listed in the book, but here are a selection for you of his time with the Irish Guards. His daughter Maureen recalls an amusing episode from the early days when Jiggs was crossing St James's Park from Wellington Barracks en route for a parade at Horse Guards. He was in full dress uniform, accompanied by his orderly, Whiteside. To set the scene, our budgie, Peter, also known as Houdini, had made yet another bid for freedom a couple of days earlier. Suddenly, Jiggs spied Peter in the shrubbery, and having dispatched Whiteside to fetch his cage, crossed the railings, ignoring the please keep off the grass sign. After some coaxing, the budgie flew down and perched on his bearskin. The bearskin was whipped off and Peter posted into his cage, at which a cheer went up from the crowd of sightseers who had gathered to watch the drama unfold. Bearskin reinstated, the director of music and the orderly proceeded in a dignified fashion to Horse Guards Parade. Throughout Jiggs's time with the band, they were regular performers on the bandstand at Eastbourne, one of the concerts in 1952 being broadcast on the BBC Light programme. The announcer for the broadcast was Philip Slesser, very well known in his day from such programmes as the comedy Much Binding in the Marsh and as the first announcer for Friday Night is Music Night. To the immense amusement of the audience, said to number about 5,000, he was duly checked for his haircut by Jiggs when he came on stage. The bandstand at Eastbourne is surely the finest in the country, having large wooden screens with glass on both sides which would keep out the wind, mounted on rails so they could be pushed around to the back of the bandstand, out of the way in fine weather, where they are not needed. Jiggs preferred this latter position, as he could see his reflection in the glass panels, which meant that the musicians frequently had to endure the inevitable problems of keeping their music in place in the face of the strong sea breeze, so that Jiggs could admire his own conducting expertise. His infectious personality and humorous style of presenting concerts were as much the reason for their success as were his skill in selecting programmes and the high quality of his musicians. Many of his quips have more or less passed into folklore. Thank you for your support. I shall wear it always. How nice to see you all sitting there looking so browned off. It must be the son. It can't be the daughter. A little short in stature, Jiggs would explain this by telling his audience that he was once six feet tall, but had done so much marching as a youngster that his legs wore down. 
when not in uniform and introduced to someone, he would take his bowler hat through 90 degrees and say, My name's Jaeger. I expect you know yours. Corny stuff now, perhaps, but his audiences loved it. John Weeks was one of the good number of the musicians in the guards at the time who were music students from colleges who had opted to serve an additional year of their national service, three in total, to get into a band. Many of these went on to reach the top of their profession as principals, with the country's leading orchestras and a good number look back at their time with the Irish Guards as having set them on the right path by instilling the discipline and musicality required. One such man was Paul Harvey, now very much one of the great names of the clarinet world, who joined the band in 1953 and who recalled his early impressions of jigs. He writes... It was taken for granted that one measured up to the musical standard, otherwise one would not have been there. But even more demanding was the high standard of humorous repartee expected from even the lowliest members, engaging the narrow dividing line between this and military indiscretion. On one of my first guard mountings I stood quivering on the square as Jigs progressed through the ranks, chatting amicably or otherwise with members of the band. Upon confronting me, he prodded my then skeletal chest with his baton, demanded in tones of mock severity, Where are your medals, Harvey? Knowing by now what was expected, I did my best. Gone to be clean, sir. Jig shook his head sadly and moved on. On the next guard, the question was repeated. The weight was pulling my tunic out of shape, sir. And so it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Lend them to the band colour sergeant, sir. On loan to the Imperial War Museum, sir. And finally, I haven't earned any yet, sir, but I shall continue to do my duty in the hope of eventual recognition. This last attempt elicited his habitual response, steady now, which meant he conceded my repartee was gaining some degree of polish. On the next guard, I heard him asking a new recruit, where are your medals, blogs? Paul Harvey also recalls getting lost during the spin wheel on his first trooping, eventually finding his way back to his position. He writes, Swivelling my eyes to my right, I saw it was Jiggs. He swivelled his to the left and we eyed each other from under our bearskins. Welcome home, Paul Harvey, he said. Paul's comment spoke volumes in writing of a day when he overheard a remark by a morose grenadier to a bored coal streamer as all five bands were standing about in Wellington Barracks one payday. How is it, he grunted, that whenever you see the Irish, they're always laughing at something? Jiggs's method of recruiting for the band did not always follow conventional lines. Early in August 1955, the band was marching out of Buckingham Palace to lead the old guard back to Wellington Barracks, when the time-beater, band colour sergeant Nobby Clark, burst the skin on his bass drum. Jiggs immediately sensed the problem and hurried back to the Corps of Drums to order their bass drummer to start playing with the band. The Corps of Drums was from the 1st Battalion Scots Guards and the young man in question, boy Harry Copnell, had only enlisted on the 3rd of January that year, fresh from a mining village and with no training in music. Harry was to recall later that for a lad of 16 years of age to be told to play with the All Hallowed Mixed Band was unbelievable. Boy Copnell had clearly done a good job, as that afternoon he was summoned from Wellington Barracks to report to Jigs at Chelsea Barracks. 
and asked if he would like to join the Irish Guards band as the time-beater to replace Nobby Clark, who was soon to retire. Harry explained his very meagre musical knowledge, but Jiggs was not put off easily and insisted he would have an audition that bizarrely consisted of Harry marching around the practice room playing the regimental slow and quick marches on the bass drum. Surprise, surprise, he passed. Despite the promise of proper percussion lessons never really materialising, Harry Cocknell progressed through the ranks, eventually to become Bandsart Major, finally retiring in 1986 of one of the band's greatest characters. In September 1957, Jiggs took the band to Australia on tour. After 19 hours of flying, with brief stops at Fiji and the Canton Islands, they landed in Sydney and thence to Melbourne, arriving there on the 16th of September. The band travelled on a chartered Qantas super constellation, and it was a very long journey. Major Head, who was the officer in charge of the tour, decreed that everyone must shave before they got off the plane. Not a popular decision in view of only cold water being available. At Melbourne, the band played in the Olympic Swimming Stadium from the 17th to the 29th of September. With the imagination of the audience a little stretched as they were asked to imagine that the tiled floor of the Olympic pool was the gravelled surface of Horse Guards Parade. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting from Buckingham Palace, London, the band, drums and pipes of the Irish Guards. The 60 musicians marched down a wooden ramp into the shallow end of the pool, fortunately drained of water, to present a version of Trooping the Colour. And, since the deep end was ten feet below seating level, most of the band could not be seen until marching back to the shallow end during the slow troop. Bizarre. During 1961, the band was, as usual, playing on the bandstand at Eastbourne, and Jiggs happened to meet an old friend, Mrs Jean Thurtle, the divorced wife of Major Tommy Thurtle, who was director of music of the Royal Horse Guards. She had recently been engaged as housekeeper at the Priory Court Hotel at Pevensey, and Jiggs went back there with her one day for tea. The hotel was run by Tim Lord and his recently widowed mother, Betty, and with their interest in music they soon developed a close friendship with Jiggs. They had an African grey parrot, which Tim's brother-in-law had brought back from Nigeria, and with which Jiggs used to have long conversations. One year it escaped from its cage and had been finally written off after nothing was seen of it for four days when Jiggs arrived. He was determined to find it, and since he had memorised its calls, he spent two hours patrolling the field behind the hotel whistling it. Jiggs came back with a parrot on his shoulder. It had flown straight to him when he heard his voice, yet another example of his extraordinary musicality. To this day, the proposed music for Trooping the Colour is played to the Major General inside the Guards Chapel for his approval. By this stage, Jiggs has been appointed Senior Director of Music of the Household Division. The original Guards Chapel at Wellington Barracks had been destroyed by a flying bomb on the 18th of June 1944, with many fatalities including the Director of Music, Major Causley Windrum, and five musicians from the band of the Coldstream Guards. After many years with a makeshift chapel in the form of a Nissan hut, the present building was completed in 1963 with a service of dedication planned for the November. 
The band of the Scots Guards played on this occasion, as the Irish Guards were away on tour, but the responsibility fell on Jiggs, as the Senior Director of Music, to prepare the music. He liked to make new settings of some of the hymns that were to be sung, particularly with special arrangements of the last verse, sometimes rather upsetting Dr Henry Saunders, the organist of the chapel. The band, choir and trumpeters assembled with Jiggs one day to play the suggested music to an entourage, including the Major General and the Brigade Major, who then had to present the programme to Her Majesty for approval. After each of the hymns and other items, the response was getting along the lines of, yes, we like that one, Jiggs. And after about 40 to 50 minutes, they said they would have all they needed for the service. Jiggs protested that he had another one for the finish, a special arrangement of He Who Would Valiant Be. Despite the General's insistence that they already had enough, Jiggs wouldn't let it go until the General eventually sighed, If you persist, Jiggs, we'll hear it. All the stops were metaphorically pulled out, and with a tremendous climax with choir, trumpets and the band, as it finished, Jiggs turned around, looked at the Major General and said, If God doesn't appear after that, no one else will. It was duly included. In 1963, Jiggs's relentless striving for musical perfection had an unfortunate consequence. At one televised concert in the Royal Albert Hall, the band hired a huge concert bass drum to simulate the cannons in the 1812 Overture, and Harry Copnell was duly assigned to it. A problem arose when he found that, although the required drum had been provided, the correct soft beater had not. He therefore had to improvise with a normal parade beater, which was a very hard, compact tool, so he tried not to hit the drum too hard to avoid damage. Jiggs became frustrated at the lack of volume during the rehearsal and shouted to Copnell, Hit the bloody thing! This rather embarrassed Harry, so he did just that, resulting in the awful sound of ripping pigskin resounding round the Albert Hall. Copnell recalls, Jiggs looked at me, and in my innocence I said, Well, you did say to hit it, sir. Come the actual performance, Jiggs capitalised on the situation and got them to tape up the ripped skin. He then had a word with the camera operators, so that, at a given moment, they would swing the camera onto the bass drum, and Coptal was to hit the bloody thing again and make it appear that it had just ripped. Quite a production scoop, and typical Jiggs. A short story here about his occasional unorthodox dress. Jiggs was a good tennis player, which was, of course, how he met his wife, Eileen. He taught his son to play tennis in Caterham Barracks. His son recalls, On one occasion he cycled there with me, having borrowed my mother's bike and donned an extraordinarily baggy pair of shorts. On our way out, there was an Irish Guards corporal on the gate who smiled broadly as he cycled past, but failed to do anything else. It was one of the few times that I saw him stand on ceremony, but he did it with typical Jiggs panache. He U-turned, cycled back past, and then turned again. As he came level, he shouted at the top of his voice, I might look like a complete twat, but I still hold the Queen's commission. Get that sentry up! This was the first and only time I heard him use the F word. On the 24th of January 1965, the nation lost its greatest statesman and wartime leader, Sir Winston Churchill, and the whole country went into mourning. The state funeral had been planned over a number of years under the code name 
Operation Hope Not. So it can reasonably be assumed that the initial planning for the musical aspects would have been undertaken by Lieutenant Colonel Sam Rhodes, MVO, MBE, Scots Guards, who was the Senior Director of Music until 1959. The plans were regularly updated and Jiggs took over this responsibility when he became the Senior Director of Music in 1963. It was particularly appropriate that Jiggs should have charge of the musical arrangements as Churchill had served with the 4th Hussars and had been Colonel of the Regiment since 1941. He retained the colonelcy after the regiment amalgamated with the 8th Hussars in 1958 to become the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars and officers of the regiment marched in front of the gun carriage carrying Sir Winston's orders, decorations and the banners of the Sinkports and of Spencer Churchill. Trumpet Major Basil Kidd from the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars had the honour of sounding Ravalli during the service in St Paul's Cathedral after Trumpet Major Peter Wilson of the Royal Horse Guards had sounded the last post. On that very cold January morning, high up in the Whispering Gallery, in the heart of such universal feelings of emotion, there can surely have never been such a high-pressure moment for trumpeters. The mixed time-beater, Harry Cocknell, along with Jerry Mansfield, his counterpart from the Scots Guards, had been attached to the Royal Naval Gun Carriage Crew for the week leading up to the procession to assist with their rehearsals. They spend a great deal of time with Jigs and Garrison Sergeant Major George Stone, Irish Guards, at all hours of the day and night, pacing and timing the route, with rehearsals at 4.30am, often followed by guard mounting. They needed to beat a very rigid 97 paces to the minute, which was eventually settled on to accommodate the timings. A full rehearsal was held in the very early hours of the morning, with the bands playing for part of the route, but generally keeping the sound down, out of consideration for those sleeping. On the day itself, the very long and difficult march, in slow time, moved the whole nation. It was a triumph of planning and organisation, for the mood of the day was so perfectly reflected in the music. The procession left Westminster Hall at 9.45am and slow marched to St Paul's Cathedral for the service. It included ten bands marching in pairs, so that there was a continuous music with the bands alternating, and the marches broadly mirrored those played at the funeral of King George VI and earlier sovereigns. Pride of place was given to the band of the Scots and Irish Guards, who marched immediately in front of the Earl Marshal's group, which preceded the gun carriage, the Irish Guards marching in front of the Scots, since the order of procession on these occasions is for the seniority nearest the gun carriage. After the service, the procession continued through the city towards the Tower of London, the Scots and Irish Guards bands counter-marching in Great Tower Street and continued playing as the gun carriage was taken down Tower Hill to halt opposite the Guard of Honour from the Royal Marines. The mass bands, pipes and drums then took over as the coffin was taken onto the launch Haven Gore for the final part of the journey along the Thames. The procession had arrived at Tower Hill after almost three hours of marching in slow time, and a staff officer called to Jiggs, ordering him to put the time beater in the report for being 36 seconds late. Cotnell said, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, as I stood there with blood pouring from my skinless hands. But Jiggs sensibly answered that he would refuse to do as requested, as he thought 36 seconds was quite an acceptable allowance. Perhaps a British Empire medal would have been more appropriate since Big H 
had one of the most difficult and responsible tasks of the entire day. As we all know, the 60s were the time of the Beatles, and Jiggs was one of the first to score their work for military band. Having been so impressed by the sound of the Irish Guards under Jiggs on previous LPs, Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager, naturally chose to invite the band to record these arrangements, with the results being Marching with the Beatles. The recording was completed in three sessions over a day and a half, with the Beatles coming into the studio during one of the sessions to have a listen. George Martin apparently thought the arrangements were fantastic. The record was to become one of the most successful military band records of its era. The December issue of the Gramophone magazine voted it the top military band record of the year, and Michel became particularly popular, being heard at least twice a week on various record programmes such as Housewife's Choice. These broadcasts clearly attracted attention in high places. On one rather damp afternoon, the band was setting up in the grounds of Buckingham Palace in preparation for playing for the guests at a garden party. Jiggs was there, talking to band colour sergeant Mark Spendiff and some of the band members, when a lady wearing a raincoat and headscarf, with some corgis in attendance, was seen walking towards the band. One of the musicians said to Jiggs, something along the lines of, Excuse me, sir, I think that's Her Majesty. Jiggs immediately told Mark to call the band up to attention, and he saluted. He was greeted with, Hello, Jiggs. And the Queen told him that she had heard a track from the record on the radio that morning, and inquired if she could have a copy to play that evening. He could hardly contain his excitement, and spoke with the request several times to Mark in the breaks between items during their performance. Meanwhile, Jiggs's orderly, Chick Webb had been hastily dispatched to search the local record shops for a copy and returned a couple of hours later with the record, which Jig signed before it was handed over for passing to Her Majesty. Another example here of the way Jigs interacted with the audience. Towards the end of 1966, Jigs and the band appeared at the Birmingham Town Hall with the Birmingham Police Choir for their annual concert. Martin Grant recalls, this was a few weeks after Jiggs had been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. The concert started in fine style. The band assembled on stage and struck up St. Patrick's Day, which played Jiggs smartly to the rostrum, with the tune ending perfectly in time with his arrival, followed by an immaculate salute and enthusiastic applause from the full house as the band stood to attention. It was a dramatic and highly effective start, which set the tone for a great concert. The next item was the Overture Zampa, at the end of which an unfortunate couple made their steady way to their seats right on the front row, almost immediately beneath Jiggs's eyeline. Jiggs quipped, Sir, madam, I'm terribly sorry, but we started without you, which was greeted with much laughter. In 1968, Jiggs relinquished command of the band, and after a four-month sabbatical, he assumed his new role as chief instructor and director of music of the Royal Military School of Music, Nella Hall. Despite recurring health problems, Jiggs threw himself into the role with his usual gusto. By 1970, Jiggs's health continued to be a major cause for concern. He was suffering regular angina attacks, and was beginning to have great difficulty walking the short distance from his home across the grass to Nella Hall. He still refused to admit to his problems, and seemed pretty determined not to let them get in the way of his very energetic and frenetic lifestyle. 
When his son broached the subject with his father of taking it easy, the response was that, whatever the consequences, there was only one way that he could live his life, and he would do little to reduce the workload and commitments. Undeterred, he was a speaker at the 25th Conference of the Standing Conference of Amateur Music, which was held at the University College of North Wales on the 18th of September. He spoke about his experiences in America, where he had attended a festival at which 15,000 young musicians had taken part and went on to cover the range of studies undertaken at Nella Hall. However, there were further signs that his health was not all that it should be, as a few minutes before the lecture, he had asked the organiser whether he should stand or sit while speaking. Standing was suggested, but Jiggs replied that he did not feel so good, so it suggested that he took breaks and sat down from time to time. In the event, once he started, he was his usual irrepressible self, blowing top notes on the old-style cornet he took along to demonstrate. Jiggs went to Wimbledon Golf Club on Wednesday the 23rd of September for a meeting and lunch with members of the Transport Golfing Society, and one of its members later wrote, Although I thought he looked very tired, he was in high spirits. On the Friday, Jiggs travelled with Brigadier Robert Stott, Director of Appeals for SAFA, to Salisbury Cathedral, where they were planning to stage a festival of music on the 4th of December. Jiggs wrote up his notes on the return train to Waterloo and all seemed well. The following day, Saturday the 26th of September, a large marching band from Nella Hall under the baton of the school bandmaster, Mr Tom Griffiths, provided pre-match entertainment at Twickenham Rugby Club. Later that afternoon, the trumpeters, led by the school's bandsant major, Jerry McColl, left to join Jiggs in Windsor. Jiggs had produced a military spectacular to be held that evening under the floodlights in the lower ward of Windsor Castle, in front of the guardroom, as part of the Windsor Festival. It was to be repeated on the following Saturday. The display commenced at 10pm and featured music and marching from the bands of the Grenadier Guards and the Welsh Guards, along with the pipes and drums of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards, including some Highland dancing, with trumpeters from the Royal Military School of Music, Nella Hall, positioned up on the battlements. Jiggs conducted the finale, which combined the bands and the antiphonal trumpeters in the fanfares and the music of Sir Arthur Bliss. Jiggs conducted the finale, which combined the bands and the antiphonal trumpeters in the fanfares and music that Sir Arthur Bliss had composed for the investiture of the Prince of Wales. The show came to a conclusion with Last Post, followed by My Home, played by the piper on the ramparts of the Round Tower. At the end of the evening, Jiggs returned to his home in Duke of Cambridge Close, adjacent to Nella Hall. He had, as usual, given his all to his conducting and he arrived home feeling exhausted and complaining of chest pains. He felt that he couldn't breathe and went round the house opening windows and drinking water. Eileen wanted to fetch a doctor who lived nearby, but Jiggs retorted, Don't be silly, he's a gynaecologist, I'm not having a baby. His condition deteriorated fast. He was in awful pain and eventually lost consciousness. His son got him onto the floor and tried to give him resuscitation but he had suffered two massive coronaries. He had died by the time the ambulance arrived. The official cause of death were recorded as myocardial infarction and coronary disease. The news spread fast. Student bandmaster Rodney Parker had a knock at his door at six o'clock in the morning. 
to find the duty student bandmaster Jim Dot. The message at that ungodly hour on a Sunday morning was quite blunt. Jiggs has died. The student had known that he had been having problems, but he had no idea that the end was that close. Jiggs's funeral took place at the Southwest Middlesex Crematorium at Witton on the 2nd of October. His coffin was carried by a bearer party of six student bandmasters, including Nigel Borlace, Jerry McColl and Jerry Lafferty. A memorial service was held in the Guards Chapel on the 12th of October 1970, with standing room only. The address was given by the very popular chaplain, the Reverend Gus Claxton. He said, For me, it is incredibly hard, as I stand in this pulpit, to realise that Jiggs is not physically present among the musicians in the band gallery. We have heard some of his music. Some of it for the first time, and none of it, I dare say, for the last time. He will live on in these arrangements, characteristic as they are of the man, expressing the qualities of his personality and character. For what he has done is to take something familiar and pedestrian, and sometimes dull, and with a flamboyant gesture, touched it with magic and made it live. I well remember the day I first came to live in Wellington Barracks, very new, strange and frightened. I don't think I'd ever spoken to a guardsman in my life. When I'd been here a few days, reduced to what seemed to be like a permanent state of apprehension, I saw a small figure wearing a bowler hat, walking briskly across the yard. He stood to attention. My name's Jaeger, Irish Guards for 17 years, Senior Director of Music, always known as Jigs. He then took off his hat, put it on the wrong way round. At that moment, my daughter came up behind me. Tell me, my dear, he said, why do bees hum? Well, you all know the answer to that. But from that moment on, I knew I was among friends. He had an incredible gift for breaking down barriers, or more accurately, behaving as if they weren't there. It was the supreme art of communication. Jiggs was a showman. We have heard that said of him many times, and as I say it now, without any hesitation. He himself never pretended not to be. After the carol service in the chapel three years ago, Jiggs came up to me and said, We've already had one telegram. As so often, I fell for it. Really? I said. Yes, he said. It was from God. It said, just watch it. His life's work needed a touch of showmanship. That great British pianist Cyril Smith, in his autobiography, Duet for Three Hands, said that when he was a student at the Royal College of Music, there were many student pianists better than he was, both technically and musically, but he knew they would never achieve the status of concert pianist. When Jiggs took up the baton, it was not only the scholarship and knowledge that went into the score reading, nor the accuracy of timing or the care of interpretation. It was the certain flair, the fact that he could get it across. And this was to give his performance an excitement and a quality that was electrifying. But he knew when to turn off the showmanship. He knew when to be quiet. I always loved the way the choir came out after a church service when he was conducting. It was a verse or two of a well-known hymn, played quietly and reverentially, but with a subtle difference of harmony and arrangement, which added a thrilling beauty and a meaning to it. Jiggs had innumerable friends from all over the world, and a wonderful way of keeping in touch with them. He could never help doing a kindness. Those who knew him well will never forget his love for his fellow man.
he would go out of his way. He would think of little things. He would take the most immense trouble to help people. I think it must be very rare for him to have left anybody without their feeling better for having been in his company. More cheerful, more light-hearted, less pompous, yes, and younger. His great appreciation for youth and the tremendous practical help he gave them in various ways was rewarded by the appeal he had for them and the response he always seemed to get from them. He was large in heart and young in heart, and there was a childlike delight and enthusiasm about him when his own music was performed or when he demonstrated some new idea he had just had. I've known him angry, very angry indeed. I've known him difficult, very difficult. I have said to him, I don't know what I've done to deserve having to cope with you wretched musicians. But I've never known him able to harbour a grudge or be anything but magnanimous or charitable in his judgments. Most of you in this chapel realise better than I do what a tremendous loss to music in the army his going from us has been. It has been an equal loss to gaiety and to laughter and friendship. When, to crown his brilliant career, he was appointed director of music at Nella Hall, he outlined to me the plans he had for church music there. I don't know if he had time to put many or any of his ideas into action. They were, as you would expect, forward-looking and alive, and I only hope the day will come when some of his ideas are realised. Our thoughts and affections today are with Jiggs. Our sympathies and affections are with Eileen, Maureen and Christopher. I would like to say one last thing. Jiggs lived in the only way he could. He had been ill, and he knew how serious it was. One is bound to wonder that, if he'd taken more care and lived more quietly, whether he might have prolonged his life. But he was not one who could take that kind of care of himself. He was one who would put everything that was in him into what he did. He was one whose nature was to burn himself out. That was one of the secrets of his personality. I don't believe we would wish to take it from him. Well, let's leave it there for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about one of the brighter lights in the Guard's musical firmament. As I record this episode, we've just learned of the Prime Minister's decision to take the nation into another month-long lockdown, so I will do my best to add further episodes to keep you interested and amused in these strange times. I've just been handed the management accounts of the museum up to the end of September, which make grim reading. Should you wish to support the museum during these uncertain times, then do please either send a cheque to the museum or, if you prefer, go to our website www.theguardsmuseum.com and click on the Support Us button, where you can leave a donation. We are fast approaching Remembrance Sunday, and the Covid restrictions will make it a very different occasion to that which we are used to seeing. Nevertheless, I am sure the nation will still pause at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month to recall all those who gave their lives for our freedom, the ultimate sacrifice, lest we forget. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 21 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down, and get away. Bye.